Welcome to ConExpo ConAg Radio, where we bring you boots on the ground perspectives from construction business owners and industry experts about their successes, challenges, and whatever else is on their minds. Consider them your own personal mentors on technology implementation, equipment solutions, business management, and more, enabling you to apply their expertise to your business. Held every three years in Las Vegas, ConExpo ConAg is North America's largest construction trade show. For even more ways to connect with the industry, visit conexpoconag.com forward slash connect. We've got another great guest on the show today, so let's dig in. The youngest black woman to receive California's CSLB general engineering license, Jennifer Todd, serves as LMS general contractors founder and president. Jennifer heads the company's management team and is responsible for developing and executing LMS's strategic growth. Jennifer is a strong advocate for job creation and employee development. Her Greener Tomorrow apprenticeship program is geared towards the advancement of unemployed and underemployed people of color. She is a recognized speaker and top professional in the industry. Her recent achievements include Construction Business Owners Outstanding Women in Construction finalist and November 2020's cover feature, ENR's Top 40 Professionals for 2021, and ENR's Southeast Top Young Professionals for 2021. Today, we'll take a deeper dive into her thoughts on workforce development and diversity in the construction industry. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for those listeners that may not know you, I mean, I've followed you for quite a while um, on your handle at Construction Law Girl. Um, love following you on Instagram. I think you put out a great message for not just business owners, but also staff members and operators and, and the field out there. But for those that don't know you and all the great things you're doing, like I do, um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about you and how you got into this industry? Why, thank you. I got in this industry by accident and I met a friend, ran into him. He told me all about his construction business and I uh, called him that Monday. And the next thing you know, I had a construction job and it was pretty much just that, uh, that simple. Yeah. What was the job or, or tell me a little more about, was it what you did for that? Well, initially it was just basically he needed someone in the office and that at the time, I didn't know that there were a myriad of different jobs in the office. I thought just secretary. I had no idea about the project management roles or the estimator or coordinators and things like that. So when I started out, I was a secretary. So I was doing a lot of the basic paperwork. And as time progressed, I became a project coordinator and went on to do estimating, field uh, supervisor. And before I left, I was the vice president of environmental work. So, Wow. So you kind of worked your way up from the role of secretary. I literally started from the bottom. That is <laughs> yes. amazing. And you know, that is kind of a lot of the expected role. I've noticed that kind of bias with, with females in our industry of, you know, secretary, but I, I don't think that should be overshadowed. I, I think we've seen some really phenomenal talent out there who, mm -hmm. like you just said, can start in that position and really get exposed to every area. Um, yeah, I definitely think with the right type of leadership, uh, I was lucky in the fact that I came, uh, started with a smaller company. And so there was a lot of room to grow. And I'm very thankful to have had a boss who was open-minded about me, you know, he didn't yeah. just limit me to the administrative aspect, but was open to me working in the field as well. That's phenomenal. And that truly speaks to, it's going to take a lot of male leaders out there to really change what our workforce looks like. And there's so many good ones. Mm -hmm. I've had the same good experience where yeah. most of the leaders I've encountered in this industry have accepted and been open to dealing with a Latino female in the earth moving industry, which is not their norm. You were there at that company. What happened? So you earned your way all the way up to the top there. What started coming to your mind, you know, once you were in that position? Well, there were a few things personally that were going on. Initially, I started LMS out as a consultant company and we were doing disaster recovery. And that was back in 2011. And it was really my boss who encouraged me to start the company because we were doing 
the demolition work and disaster relief work there in Pratt City, Alabama. And so he says, hey, they, they need consultants and things are moving so fast. Why don't you just open a company? You can do the consultant work. It's not a conflict. And you, know, you can still do your work here. And wow. so I did that. But afterwards, um, I didn't really do anything with the company after we finished that disaster project because I essentially had a, a full-time job there. Once we started working in Los Angeles, I began to see the different landscape of things that I really wanted to go to law school. And so that was kind of a pivotal point for me. And my boss basically said, look, you can't go to law school and work here. It'd be impossible. So <laughs> go to law school and come back when you're finished no problem. And so once I entered law school, I said, eh, well, maybe I'll just kind of do my own thing or put some fillers out there and see what's going on. And I didn't really get any uh, good feedback from people about doing what I wanted to do, which was basically be a vice president or some sort of C-suite leadership. They were just like, no, <laughs> we don't have anyone who looks like you. We don't have any women in those specific roles. That's you could be like a project coordinator or something. And so that's really what jarred me to just kind of start LMS and get things rolling with that. And I said, I'll just do it myself. So yeah. So your experience was you wanted, I mean, which surprises me, right? You've got all this experience at the company you're with before you've got, you know, your law degree and you desired to kind of go, come back into the industry, work at the C-suite level and no one was open to that. No, but ironically, I have worked with some of the companies who wouldn't give me a job. So <laughs> I won't mess this done work for them. So it's, hey, I couldn't work for you, but I could work with you. So whatever. Yeah. So it, it <laughs> worked out in the aim. It came full circle. So yeah. talk about the early days. So you, you kind of made that decision, you know, rather than, and I think that's important quality to talk about rather than look at this barrier and, and, and keep beating your head against the wall, you kind of pivoted and said, okay, I could still work with these companies. I'll just start yeah. my own. Talk to us about that transition because it is a really big deal to start a company. I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah. It, it's a huge commitment. It's a lot of sleepless nights. Talk to us about those early days of LMS and, and jumping into the pool. It was quite the undertaking because one, you're, you're launching a business in the what I think a lot of people have trouble with is that when you're with an established company, people will do anything for you. They will move mountains for you to get things done, but you could be the same person and start your own thing. And it's like, well, I don't know you. I don't know what you're capable of. I don't know. I'm not sure that you're competent to do this job. It's like, Hey, I just did it with this company, surely I can do it for myself. So basically people don't realize is that you're starting all over again, even mm -hmm. though you have the work and the reputation behind you, you really have to work to build the trust of your people that you have relationships with in order to get there, you know, yeah. and to get that first contract. It's one of the hardest things to do. You know, luckily I was able to get the first contract based on my relationships with someone that we had prior to, but it's hard. And then going to law school and running a company, it's just, uh, it's pure insanity. And I don't know what I was thinking, but, <laughs> yeah. but no regrets, right? <laughs> you know, it depends on the night sometimes. Yeah. Yes. But mostly no, there are, there are no regrets. And I'm glad that I took the steps to get the law degree, which was really important to me because as a woman and, and being black in this industry, I wanted to make sure that I was protected. And that was really why I went to law school. So much of what we do, people don't understand that construction is can be very uh, litigious. There's a lot involved. You've got contracts and change orders and liens and the bigger the project or depending on the state, especially California is rigorous with laws. Yeah. So you have to know what you're doing uh, from just the administrative part, not simply in the field. You'll never make it to the field if you don't get the contracts right, if you can't understand the middle portion. Yeah. So I wanted to make sure that I was protected and who else would have my best interests but me. So. Yeah, that's pretty phenomenal that you recognize that on the front end. I think that's something we learned a few years into business. I finally kind of figured out we have to have a retainer with a reputable firm Absolutely. that we are checking everything we do with. Because like you said, 
all the field work is amazing and, and it's great and it looks great and it's exciting, but the administrative work being perfect and cohesive is what makes the field work possible. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's pretty outstanding that you saw that and you were like, I want to be the solution. Yeah, it really was like um, we didn't have a choice because I worked for a, a smaller firm, which was a black firm. And yeah, they were doing uh, seven figures easy, yeah. easily a year, but it was always a challenge. There was always some sort of fight or people that we had to uh, to deal with or overcome to get onto the job site or to deal with, you know, the most some unfriendly people or racist people or, or whatever. <laughs> so. Yeah you had to be prepared and the only way you could be prepared is to have it together and yeah. so I wanted to make sure I have it together That's and kind awesome. of going back to your point Missy, construction moves so fast and so we had so many problems of getting the attorney on the phone and trying to reel off to them everything that's happened while you have people in the field on standby you're losing money trying mm -hmm. to explain this is what happened what do we need to do should yeah. we stop work or what, what what's going on and yeah. so you know what they could consider expedient a couple was a couple of days and you're like no i need to know like in a couple of hours <laughs> these days are brutal and they're expensive <laughs> yeah yeah you know you're losing work you're losing money the people are impatient i mean yeah so that was the other thing that i didn't want to deal with and when you're a small company you don't always have the money for a retainer you know yeah. or or you know or cpa or those necessary people that help facilitate your business yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think we kind of waited for a few years. Like you said, you don't always have the money when you're getting started. And so you try to figure it out yourself. And then that kind of comes back to haunt you at some point, you know, and you then you learn the lesson the hard way and you fall on your face and you pay the 20 grand and you're like, oh, okay, that was my $20,000 school lesson. <laughs> so I love that. It's really admirable that you pursued that um, to approach your business more strategically. And I think that says a lot about your leadership style as a strategist. Now talk about your end, because you also have your engineering license. So mm -hmm. was that after you received your law degree? I actually received my engineering degree, uh, engineering license first, and that's with the state of California. And again, I saw instances where people, uh, a lot of times, if you have a GC license, you have a representative or a responsible managing employee who's over your license. And at any point, I saw instances where contractors were, you know, flat on their face when someone decided to leave or there was some dispute. And now you have no one to represent the company with this license. And so... I never wanted to be put in that position. And so I relied heavily on uh, my on the job education that I received, took the exam and I was the, uh, the, youngest, the youngest black woman to achieve that in the yeah. state of California, general engineering A license. So I just wanted to, and that was another token of ownership. You know, yeah. a lot of times uh, you get into business and things don't always work out. And sometimes people break up and that's okay. That's part of business. But I knew that if I had things like my law degree and every GC license or license that I had, I took the exam, no one could take that away from me. And that's awesome. it also showed people that I actually understand what's going on. So. Yeah. What a quick way to earn trust, because I think you probably recognized right away, just at, with your experience at the previous firm, the barriers that are there. I think regardless, if you're a business, you're, you're going to come up against barriers, but then you add some of the layers of the, the diversity barriers and female, yeah. and you kind of went at that to me in a great way of saying, I've, I've dotted all my I's, I've crossed all my D's, I have these certifications, I understand the work, um, and I really commend that you did that on the front end. Um, I imagine to your workers and your staff members, not just your customers, but your, your teams probably really appreciate that level of experience that you're bringing. Yeah, because it also gives a, it gives a chance, especially for the women within LMS to understand that there are no limits. And so you don't have to be relegated to a specific role or gender specific, you know, thing within the company. If yeah. you want to do excavation and you do it, someone will teach it to you. If you want to do estimating, that's fine. I mean, 
even vice versa, if you're a man and you, you don't want to work in the field, but you want to work in the office and have that project management role. Yeah, we have that. So awesome. it works both ways. That's absolutely awesome. So one of the approaches you've taken as a business owner is you have um, worked in every single role, LMS. So talk me through some of those roles quick. I, I want to hear, you know, maybe a story or two on the different roles you filled and maybe the good or bad day of that role. Well, I will say I have worked almost all the roads, except I cannot operate an excavator. So I can do a skidster, but I cannot operate an excavator. Uh, and the fact that I probably uh, just, a, a, you know, not that much over 100 pounds probably has something to do with it. Just a, little, a lot of bouncing around in there. So that's possible. However, however I, it's on my to-do list to really at least, you know, pick up a couple of uh, loads of soil or something. I mean, at least some soft demo. I got to get that in there. Yeah. Uh, at least learn that, you know, to, to put that in my hat. But yeah, I um, I really just enjoy, out of all the jobs, I really enjoy uh, estimating the most. You know, we have a lot of technology and stuff now, but when I started, you know, all of the auto desk and the plan rooms and things like that, they really weren't as prevalent as they are now, you know. Yeah. So you really had to do your takeoffs by hand on Excel sheets with the rulers and you know scientific calculators. And so um, once I realized that I was good in algebra again, then I, I really loved estimating the most. Awesome. Tell me about some of the field roles that you fulfilled because I don't know. I, love, I absolutely love being in the field too. Me too. <laughs> I, I love the camaraderie with the guys, and I mean guys and girls as well. I love that, um, and I love seeing uh, the women. You know, about forty percent of our workforce is women, so I love to see them really challenging the men and and holding you know their feet to the fire when it comes to doing the abatement work that we do. So that tell me quick now, what are some of the primary services that LMS provides, and sure. then what, where do you provide those services? Sure, we do primarily demolition and environmental and remediation services. So asbestos, lead, mold. Uh, right now we're doing a lot of COVID-19 sanitization services as well. And we are licensed in California, Georgia, and Florida. Awesome. So when you say demolition, are you guys um, bringing down buildings? Are you going in and yeah. doing interior demos? We're doing uh, everything. We do a lot of full structural demo. Uh, we've done bridges. Uh, we do hotels, apartment complexes. Awesome. We also do a lot of selective demo, interior demo as well. Uh, you know, grading, earthwork, site work, anything that's pretty much in conjunction with uh, demolition and remediation. That's yeah. what we do. That's what you guys do. And, you know, tell me, you've grown, you know, exponentially over the years and consistently. And I want to just ask you this question, you know, business owner to business owner, I think it's good to talk strategy always when yeah. you, know, you have the opportunity to, to connect with other business owners. What has been one of your approaches or leading strategies when it comes to growth or a growth mindset as a business? Because we all know when you're in, in the heat of it, right, you're going, 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 you, you have to take the step back and have the strategy and, and the growth mindset. So talk to us about your kind of strategic uh, focus with My uh, key thing to growth has always been slow and steady wins the race. Mm -hmm. A lot of times people think that bigger is better. You know, you see the ENR list and you want to be on it and you want to tackle 15 cities and things like that. But what happens is that you can't keep your eye on everything. And so it's better to just grow organically. Don't try to, you know, have this massive presence where one, you're fine, the numbers don't meet and you don't have the people to support that capacity. Yeah. So for us, we have taken a strategy of, you know, we like to do a few jobs at a time. I don't like to do a bunch of jobs, but maybe a larger project and something one or two smaller projects going on because that way you can really manage the job and essentially manage the profit because right. it doesn't make sense if you have 10 jobs and you're not making any money off any of them so exactly. you know for me it's about hey focusing on those one or two jobs and trying to get the most profit yeah out of it out of and those individuals it, that works for me so. that's brilliant and really i think that's a great thing for you know business owners to hear 
because, you know, right now construction is so busy. Mm-hmm. We're all getting jobs kind of thrown at us, right? The stack's big. The, our, the bids coming in our office, and I'm sure it's the same with you, is, is just huge. The list is long. But what is the strategy here? Are we strategically thinking through what jobs are the best fit for our calendar and for profit? And how can we make sure we limit the amount of jobs so we have our eyes on it? I think that's a brilliant approach. Yeah, a lot of times we, we see this and we see all of these bids and we think about all the money that you could make <laughs> and all the work that you could do, but that's not really realistic. Not. Uh, the realistic aspect is all the money that's going out that and you have to wait to get it back. So uh, no, I, I like to make good profit margins. And so sometimes, you know, bigger is not always better. Right. Right. Well, let's make a pivot. I really appreciate you kind of sharing us your strategic approach with your business. And it's been awesome to watch that work, you know, in multiple areas, you know, in multiple states. But let's take a pivot to talk about workforce development and diversity. And I I think it's really, really important to have this conversation with you because you've actually established, you know, solutions as a respectable business owner in the industry. Your apprenticeship training program, A Greener Tomorrow, creates living wage construction jobs for men and women who desire to work, but lack the knowledge or opportunities to do so. Tell us why you started this amazing program and the positive changes that you've seen from it so far. Well, thank you for asking that. I started A Greener Tomorrow out of a necessity, really. I saw that a lot of Black and brown people were not being hired at construction sites. We were doing a lot of work in the inner cities and flooded with people coming to the gates inquiring about how can I get a job because they hadn't seen anyone black or or Latina basically running the company. They saw workers, but they didn't see people in leadership positions. That's pretty much how it started. You know, we did a lot of HUD projects and there are Section 3 residents there. So we kind of started with Section 3 and expanded it. And so it's worked. You know, I'm, I'm sort of selfishly asking a lot of questions about a greener tomorrow. Sure. One, it's important that yeah. business owners and even operators out there, divert, there's a diverse workforce that could go to their leadership with this idea of what if we started a program or apprenticeship that just got more inclusive and in training. For us personally, we are being awarded some of the jobs right now downtown um, where damage has been kind of done in Minneapolis area. We're being hired to clean it up. And it happens to be on the same block of my old previous job at the nonprofit I used to work at um, in an at-risk neighborhood. And, and what I've committed to our general contractors is we're gonna hire differently for these jobs. Yeah, We're going straight back to Urban Ventures we're going to go to the seniors that are in the youth programs and say, mm-hmm. you can hold the flag, you can hold the hose, yeah. you, can, you know, wave the trucks. So I am really, really wanting to dive into this agreement yeah. tomorrow yeah. Um, yeah. for everyone. So talk us through like starting something like that, just on a simple level. Well, first, congratulations on your full circle moment there. Yeah, that was uh, awesome. <laughs> Thank you. And, uh, and second, it, it goes back into what you said and what we have discussed before, you know, previously about being intentional with what you do, you know, uh, what gets measured, as we know, gets done. And so when you are setting out to intentionally say, hey, look, let's reach out to these programs, let's, let's reach out to the workforce developments, let's reach out to uh, local community agencies and uh, leaders to see, hey, how can we incorporate people? Because a lot of times with construction, it's, you know, you have to know someone in order to get into this business or you have to know something. So if you don't know someone and you know nothing about the industry, what avenue will you have? And so creating an avenue and creating an opportunity to teach people about construction opens the door. And that's really what it's all about. It's just creating that segue. And that's, I am a product of, of opportunity. Yeah. Someone created an opportunity for me and now I'm in a position to create opportunities for others. That's awesome. So you started the program as, you know, not just an awareness piece, but it, it actually, you do training. How do you run it or who runs it? Do you hire kind of season talent and and you connect people kind of talk us through a little bit of the nuts so what, what we do is basically when it comes to abatement and demo which is our primary function what we do is we work with uh, 
local workforce. Uh, we work with uh, Section 3 locators, the so people within the HUD programs who have residents who are out of work or underemployed. So we basically kind of have like a big meeting or they may have potential people that they have relationships with and say, hey, look, we've had a hard time placing this person. Uh, can you help us? And a lot of times it may be people who are who have background issues, you know, or who have just, you know, problems getting, a, you know, a steady job. They need employment. And so we work with them and we do classroom training, which includes OSHA and uh, various other construction safety courses. And then we put them in the field with our seasoned workers. And this is both men and women that we do this with. And, and basically uh, they kind of figure it out. You know, some people kind of lean more to the heavy equipment. And so we get people, you know, within the company that are willing to help them and teach them. And then we get people who thrive in the abatement world. And so we put them there. And so that's basically how we've done it and uh, it works. And if it's something that they don't want to do, they usually don't show back up to work the next day. And so, <laughs> so it's kind of a, it's kind of an easy process. They're like, oh, this is too much. I, I'm out of here. And the other people are like, yeah, that's a bad, hey, this yeah. is good. So you but, deal with that too. <laughs> yeah. But uh, when people find out that you can make a living wage or even a prevailing wage doing these jobs and that you're able to support your family, because you're not talking about a minimum wage job, you're talking about someone, uh, you know, when you talk about California, someone could be making $70 an hour as an operator or even $50 an hour as an operator, uh, excuse me, as a uh, labor, general labor. Yeah. And so that requires no special skill set to hose a building down and keep the debris down, you know. Yeah. So there, there's no special skill sets involved for a lot of the things that we do. So it's a life-changing life income too. Yeah. Um, one of the things I was thinking about, as you just said that is, you know, when I used to work in the at-risk neighborhoods, a lot of the kids and, and the neighborhood we worked in was primarily Hispanic and African-American. And we would ask the kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do? Always an attorney or a doctor. Like that, that's, that was as far as they could think, you know, or what had been put in front of them. And what you're doing is saying, let me put some other career paths in front of you that actually you're making <laughs> some really good money, life-changing, a life-changing income. Yeah, um, and in some cases, you may be making more than some lawyers because- I was gonna uh, say. Yeah, <laughs> or, or doctors, uh, especially when you consider that there is no student loan debt associated with this, you know, with the construction industry. It's something that within a matter of months that you can actually have gainful employment. And the beautiful thing about what we've done with the Greener Tomorrow is that a lot of people have used us as a platform, which we love because they didn't have experience. And so when you go to another company, a larger company, and you go with experience and you go with your asbestos certificate and your OSHA certifications and your HAZWOPER cert, and you say, hey, I've worked for this company, uh, this is the projects that we've done, then you can get hired. I mean, we have people who have literally moved out of low-income housing. They've been able to buy houses. They're making sixty dollars to $100,000 a year. And all they needed was an opportunity and someone yeah. to teach them, you know, that there are other things out here to do. And that's yeah. construction. And construction, they can go, like you said, without college, without debt. That's attainable, you know, for, for some of those at-risk communities is, is my next step is here. I can go to a classroom training. Mm -hmm. I can attend that. I can, and then to get that far is, is just absolutely amazing. So do you have any stories that stick out to you, like any success stories from a greener tomorrow that, that you'd love to share? Yeah, I have a, um, I, yeah, there are a few. I have, um, we had a guy that was, a felon, he had gone to basically prison for murdering his stepdad, kind of grim, but the stepdad was abusive too, and he was saving the mother. So um, regardless, he got about 15 years or something like that. And so no one was willing to hire him because you just hear, you know, the fact that you've murdered someone, like that's not really a selling point when it comes to uh, gainful employment. And so um, we hired him at the bequest of the workforce. And so um, 
he was not a very good construction laborer. And I just was like, he's always hiding. You had to go find him. He was hiding in the building behind it, anything to get away from the work. And so we said, what are we going to do with this guy? I mean, you know, I feel so bad, like what we're going to do with him. But we found out that he was great at taking notes. And so he was super organized. He was able to get the trucks in line. He could tell you how many there were and uh, all of the paperwork was like pristine. And so that is a hard skill set to find. Absolutely. Paperwork, accurate timesheets, accurate trucks, hauling vendors. He was able to manage all of it. Wow. He wasn't even asked to do it. He just started kind of keeping track of it. And so that has helped him substantially. And we told him like, hey, you could have a real role in doing a lot more project management tasks sort of because, you know, physical labor is not your thing. But hey, look, there is there is a role for you. That's awesome. And uh, another story is uh, uh, we have a girl, Latia. She's great. She had few children and um, she just didn't know. Great, great, great employee. And now she is an asbestos supervisor and she kicks butt like really, she's really, really amazing. And it's great to see her flourishing. You know, she's worked all over the country now. She hadn't even left Atlanta when we first started working with her. She'd never flew. She'd never, she'd never left the state. And now she's like worked in 10 or 15 states. You know, she's making $70,000 a year. I mean, it's, it's great. So people like that just inspire me to keep it going. Yeah. To keep it rolling. I'm sure. And every time someone goes through the program, I'm sure it's just rewarding whether they end up staying, like you said, with you or using that as a platform to grow um, and, and advance their career in another another place. That's awesome. What advice would you give business owners, you know, looking to start a similar apprenticeship program to what you've done with a greener tomorrow? I would just say that they need to definitely go back to to the word of being intentional. You know, you have to one understand that uh, diversity is not inclusion, and to truly be inclusive, employees need to have a voice, and it, it's pretty hard to talk about diversity when everyone looks the same and that could be either race or gender. Mm -hmm. And so you really have to get down to that. Uh, We need to talk to other people. We need to talk to our employees. We need to talk to the people who would be impacted by the diversity the most. Um, The second thing I talk about is, like I said, measuring and seeing how can we really get to diverse talent, you know, and that's within the company as well. You know, you need to have people that are of various races and gender get into these C-suite positions, get into the positions of leadership because they need to have autonomy over that role and really be able to make the decisions. And that for you can see more change and uh, really more diversity within an organization. And that's just within it. So that's interesting. You're bringing up a solution that was one of your first barriers in our industry, which is getting into that C-suite position, which you were more than qualified to be in that position. So you're, you're saying, you know, large general contractors, mid-sized general contractors, if you want to be a more diverse company, because I think most of our eyes tend to go right to the field, right? Okay, let's find the people. You're saying, look at your C-suite executives and start bringing diversity into the decision-making room and that will kind of organically transition the company yeah. in a better direction. At the end of the day, uh, Missy, you and I, we're women. We can't have a conversation about how we can attract more men into the construction field. It wouldn't be <laughs> quite successful because neither of us have been men. Uh, you know, we could be married to men, we could work with men, but we're still not men. So I can't, we can't say, hey, how can we get wh- more white men in the construction industry, what do you think we need to do? Yeah. The first thing that we'd say is let's go talk to some white men and see what can, what is it that we can do to attract them to this industry? And it's no different, you know, hey, when you're trying to hire people of color and get more women, you need more people in the room at the table to have that discussion. 
And that way we can really see more difference. And that's just within the company. Yeah. The other thing is that if it's not happening within the company, more than likely we know it's not happening outside of the company. Yeah. You know, I say this all the time. I go to websites and I and I hear, you know, oh, we care about LGBTQ and Black Lives Matter. And then I go to the website and everyone's white. Yeah. And everyone on the board's white. And I'm like, well, well, I don't. I don't know that you do because yeah. I don't really, I don't need you to say it. I yeah. just rather see it. Yes. Then I will know that it really truly exists because today uh, employees are just more in tune with a company's culture. And so what they see represents who you are. And yeah. so you, I don't care about what you're telling me. I want to see it so that I know it's actually being implemented. Absolutely. I think this is an important time and that you bring it up where the action has to start being in alignment with the message. So we've got the message down. We know what we need to do. Now our actions need to support that. And I think what holds up companies is they're thinking of hiring in the field and training and you're saying hire decision makers diversely. Yeah. Hire decision makers diversely. And that will, and that's just kind of the light bulb moment for me from this interview as well you hire the decision makers diversely, things will change within your company. If not, essentially what you're saying to the world and to the industry is that only white men are competent enough to operate medium and large scale businesses. And so if that's what you believe, then if it's not what you believe, then you should kind of change that to show that it's something different. Otherwise- That's what you're putting out there into the universe. <laughs> yeah. And I love, I just, and, and I hope from listening to this interview, they can learn the lesson from who didn't hire you. You got a law degree and engineering license and started the company capable of probably, you know, pivoting a large company in a, in a really phenomenal direction. You just had to end up doing it yourself, but I and hope they're able to hear that story and really. It's funny you said that because after I finished the project, uh, I told I told one of the managers, he said, you know, you guys never hired me, right? You turned me down. And he was like, what do you mean? Like, we just did a job together. I said, no, I applied to work here. And I was told that I was not qualified to do it. And he said, what? <laughs> Unbelievable. He said, you weren't because you were supposed to be a subcontractor. So no, you weren't qualified to work here. You were there qualified you to be a contractor. And I was like, all right, I'll accept that. We'll let him slide on that one. <laughs> With that net 15 and not 30. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) That's the way to say thank you. (laughs) So any other, and that's a great intentional step that you've just spoken to any other steps that business owners can take to become more intentional and inclusive with their hiring practices and create more supportive cultures. I would say, uh, I would say yes, but I would speak more to subcontractors and vendors. I think that for medium-sized and large-scale majority-owned companies, especially if they want to attract more diverse talent, and I'm talking about uh, people of color and uh, women-owned businesses, they have to change the way that they do business. And what I mean by that is that all small businesses are not monolithic. They're not the same. So for me, especially with LMS, I mean, as you said, I have an engineering license, I've gone to law school, I don't need a startup uh, program. They are great and there is a space for that. But if you are a business such as myself and you've been in business seven plus years, you have licensing, you have bonding, you have uh, you've worked in various states, you need opportunities. And so they need to set something up for people who need opportunities. If there are specific contracts or job ops that happen, you know, be intentional about saying, hey, let's get, you know, so many, let's reach out to some Black companies and Latina companies. Let's reach out to some women to make sure that we're incorporating it. Yeah. Those persons on this project and not just simply, hey, we have an MBE go, let's hit it. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. Create programs and create job opportunities within their organizations that are specifically geared toward qualified minority and women business owners. Uh, they're out there, but 
they don't have the time to do bonding and insurance training when you already have that. So you're leaving out this huge gap of companies that will work with you and want to work with you. But if that's the only way to get in the door, you're always going to continue to miss the mark. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even going beyond internal, external subcontractors, like I love that you brought up the suppliers. Yeah. We've been having that conversation within our company of, I want a list of woman-owned suppliers for everything we purchase as a company. And I want to take a good look and it, it'll still be the same process of competitive bidding and qualification. But I, I even said, what about our CPA? What Our CPA drives me nuts. And this, this guy, I can't get him to answer a call. Where's a woman-owned CPA? I want a list tomorrow on my desk of, let's look at our suppliers and our buying habits and maybe we're not there yet with an inclusive staff and maybe that's a, that's going to take time well what about what we're already spending money on the suppliers the vendors yeah. or who we're hiring like you said the subcontractors that's just a great great simple way to start and it's a quick way a lot of times people think that it's change it takes so long we have yes. to have a five-year ten-year plan no you don't the next job that you have, if you, you know, if you are on the, the top 100 list of NER, uh, you're doing $500 million. Okay. The next project that's $3 million. Okay. Let's set a goal to get five minority women-owned contractors that we can work with. And yeah. really I'm giving you a little grace. If you are in a smaller town, it's going to be a little more challenging. Right. If you're a large company and you're in major cities, I'm talking Chicago and Washington, D.C. And, and New York and anywhere in California, L.A., San Francisco. If you don't have any diversity and you're not meeting your goals, then that's a choice yeah. because they're there. People yeah. are there. Uh, there are there's more than enough, you know, MBEs and DBEs and WBEs right. and major cities. And so if you're not missing the mark, you have to ask yourself what are we doing wrong internally? And yeah. obviously this is a culture issue within our organization if we yes. don't see representation. Well, and, and they're, like you said, they're one simple phone call away from PTAC, their Procurement Technical Assistance Center. Mm -hmm. um, call your local PTAC office. And if you say, I would love to work with a woman or minority contractor an SBE, a small right. business, PTAC's going to be like, we'll send you the list. I mean, their job every day is to align those relationships. So absolutely, like said, keep it simple. And I, I do think there is a sense of overwhelming. How do we do this? What does this look like? And, and the GCs I've talked to or the decision makers I've talked to, it seems they're making this diversity inclusion conversation within construction companies such a big thing. Mm -hmm. And like you just said, let's start really simple, like simple decisions. Our next contract, can we hire one? Yeah. One diverse contractor. Next one, two. Next one, three. Just yeah. start simple and, and go from there. So I'm excited to talk about your leadership style because I just really admire um, your approach and how you think strategically through growing your company. So how would you best describe your leadership style and how has it evolved over the last 10 years of being a business? <laughs> I would say that I uh, was a former taker owner. I was one of those people who suffered from poor delegation. If there was a task that I could do quicker versus explaining it to someone, I would just say, I'll do it and just be done yeah. with it. And what I found out that I was drowning in a bunch of minuscule work and nothing was getting done. And so the things that really moved the business where I was needed, I could never get there Yeah, because I couldn't get out of my, my own way. And so today I am more, uh, much more flexible in saying, hey, let me share this information with you. Uh, but I'm not rigid to the point where it has to be done my way. I will show you my way. I will show you what the end result needs to look like now. And I will give you autonomy over the task. If you can do it better, quicker, a different way, and it still looks like how it needs to look at the end, I'm done with it. That's fine. Yeah. So I'm not married to how to get there. I'm just married to the end result. Long as we get the end result, that's fine. So, and, and it works. And also too, I'm, I'm open to how people learn. Everyone has a different learning style. Some people are visual, audio. And so really being close with your employees and knowing how they learn best yeah. will help you. It'll make your life much easier because Absolutely. a lot of times people just 
leaders, they bang their heads up against the wall wanting it done a certain way. And it's like, hey, ask them what works best for you. Do you want it visually? Do you want audio? Do you want me to write it down? Do you need pictures? What, what do you need yeah. me to support you? And if you ask your employees, usually they'll tell you, you know, if, but this is, again, we have a smaller company, mm-hmm. you know, bigger company, things are more, you know, just they are how they are and you adapt or die. But right. I have the luxury of, of being more flexible with my employees to say, hey, you know what we need to get done. If you can do it that way and it works, I'm fine with that. Let's do that. You described as situational, that you're a situational leader. Talk, talk yeah. to us a little bit more about that and your approach, you know, with all the, like you said, different crazy situations that come yeah. up on a daily basis. Yeah. I, I do believe that I am a situational leader because it really just depends on the person and the situation and what the task is. And, you know, in the field, things have to be done a little differently. When you're in the field, we like, like I said, we partner people, inexperienced workers with skilled workers, and basically they model what they see. And so that way they're learning the correct way to do it. They're learning the way that we do it and the most OSHA safe, compliant way to get things done. And so that's the way that we do things in the field. In the office, like I said, it's much more flexible. We have uh, rules and regulations and models and things like that in place. But I also give leniency to say, hey, if if you learn differently and this isn't something you're not accustomed to doing it this way, tell me, you know, what you're used to and let's see if we can, you know, make them meet together to get it done. That's phenomenal. I love that you're kind of approaching it so uniquely and and you're taking the unique individual and the unique role. Okay. We've got to adapt really every time, you know, because essentially when you give a person a job, they're not going to do their best if you're micromanaging them or if you're hounding them, they need to know that this is their role, you know, because it gives the person some ownership and it makes them really feel a part of the company to know that, Hey, my team is relying on me. And, you know, people take pride in their work when, when they own it. Yeah, absolutely. So you've done almost every single position in the business, which we talked about previously prior to becoming an owner. How has that experience changed your outlook on employee development? Yeah, kind of just touching on what I just said, really a lot of it is just, you know, learning what works for people and uh, and understanding how things are done. When you've done a specific role, it's much easier to tell a person how to accomplish it and some of the issues that they may have. So when you haven't done something, it's like, you know, you keep saying these things and it's like, hey, you don't understand (laughs) what goes on in this. And it kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier with the field and and with the admin in the office. You know, the field doesn't understand what happens in the office and the office doesn't understand what happens in the field. But I've done both. So I get the pressing needs of both parties. And we're able to work it out, so. Tell me, um, you know, the biggest roadblocks that you've faced, you know, not just as a business owner, but as a Black female business owner and how you've overcome them. And I think it's important for you to touch on some of these roadblocks, you know, so that the community can hear and maybe identify with subconscious roadblocks they could be creating you know, themselves. And, and this was a question I struggled to ask you, to be honest with you, because I thought, why? like, I, I, I'm like, I don't want to just pigeonhole her into this conversation because she's such a respectable business owner, just as a business owner. Yeah. Um, but I know that there's subconscious bias out there and, and unintentional, like, you know, I didn't realize that that action or step. So I, I would like you to identify, you know, what are some of those roadblocks and, and what can we, you know, do to do better? Well, I mean, I'm glad that you asked the question because it's still a necessary question and a necessary conversation because yeah. when we talk about uh, construction, you have to think this is an industry that grosses millions and millions of dollars a year, we're talking about nearly a billion dollars a year, yet you only have 2% of that is black businesses. So it's an issue. I mean, you have 9.9% of women in the industry. So you have to ask yourself, 
why are these things happening? Like, why is there not more of a presence? And, you know, being a double minority, a black woman in the construction industry has a lot of challenges. And I think that people don't realize that it does because you have the luxury of not having to deal with it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, you know, it's something that, hey, every day I wake up, I'm black and I'm a woman. So here it goes. And yeah. so it's not anything that you can overcome. I think that you just have to learn to uh, work in spite of it and realize that this is not just a construction industry issue. Uh, racial bias happens in every industry. Yeah. In every everywhere you go, you're going to uh, be overlooked or you know be shunned to some degree for what you look like and yeah. and who you are. And so, what I have done is just um, call it out. That's been my remedy, you know. When I first started in the industry, gosh, no, I would never say anything if someone, you know, exhibited implicit bias or was just flat out racist. I would just take it on the chin and keep going. But at this point, I've been in the industry for 15 years. If I encounter uh, implicit bias or racism, I I call the person to the carpet or I call their manager and say, "Hey, this is what my experience is. Do what you want with the information." But I think it's important to bring it to the attention of people because if you don't, people will think that it's okay and the behavior should not be tolerated. I think that's great. So you're you're saying, you know, and I found myself doing that in my first few years as a female um, in earth moving and waste management of letting things skirt under the rug because you're mm-hmm. still trying to find your footings. You're, you're trying to build a foundation of who am I and what am I in this industry and, and not many look like me. So how do I fit in? But then you gain that confidence and that footing and, and you brought up a very important point. The conversations at that point then start have they have to happen. Moments of bias, of uncomfortability. And I think the challenge we can put out to the community is if someone comes to you with that that difficult conversation, be open to it. That there's a real bias they've experienced. There's, you know, true racial activity out there happening on our job sites that aren't appropriate. And be open when they're brought to the forefront, when they're called on the carpet, like you're saying, you know, allow those conversations to happen so we can truly be a better industry. And, and you know, for the, I mean, and the thing is you can't really lump the two together. People have biases, we all do, they're, they're implicit biases, yes. And a lot of times those are easier conversations because some people can just say things offhand at me and they may not really mean any harm in it. Yeah. So bringing it to their attention makes them more mindful of what to say and what not to say or how something can be perceived by another party. But when there is racism, I just don't think that there's definitely any place for that. Right. But the sad reality is that many Black businesses face racism on a regular basis. I face racism on a regular basis. It doesn't, it doesn't make you exempt just because uh, you've been on a magazine cover or any of that. None of that matters. Yeah. Because when you're the only woman or the only black person or the only black woman in the room, you're going to, you're going to face racism. It doesn't matter what part of the country that you're in. So you just have to bring it, you know, say something, you know, otherwise people will continue to think that it's okay. Yeah. Anything that comes to your mind that our industry can do better where you're like, you know, and and just in hearing you talk and I know an African-American female in our area, she owns a supplying company and she just got her federal WASB, Ed WASB certification. And so I called her up and I was like, I know we're small, but I want to buy my toilet paper from you, you know? Um, And she was kind of talking through the barriers of even just being hired as a subcontractor. Oh, yeah like, wow, there's so much we can do better. Is there anything that comes to your mind where you have this opportunity with a national platform and audience to say, hey, if you guys could do one thing better, it would be this. To to understand that the representation matters. And that's why it's so important to have people who don't look like you, who don't share your views in the room you know, they have to have a seat at the table. It's not enough to have a diversity and inclusion coordinator who has no power <laughs> to do it. <laughs> Thank you for it, saying it, it, it's a great title. I know they get paid well, but it's, it's a fluff job if that person doesn't have the power to hire you. They can't hire Missy. If, if Missy comes and says, hey, we, I got a Latina business. She, she's doing this, she's doing that. 
if they can't hire you, it doesn't make any sense. So it's just, you know, if you're, if they can't recommend you, if they can't even get that far to recommend you to say, hey, look, you know, the job that we have over at 500 square, can we get Missy out there? Or can Missy give you a number for this job? I mean, yeah. you can't even get to that point, then you have to think about what, what are we doing here? Yeah, yeah. And so if you're talking about being, uh, having representation, then you have to know that it has to start at the top. Mm -hmm. It's all about your leadership and the culture that you're creating within your workforce. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, last year I wrote the article uh, in NER, a viewpoint about what it's like being a black woman in this industry. And I was floored by how many white men in the industry secretly emailed me and said, yes, yeah. We've let you down, yeah. you know, and yeah, I yeah. wish that I could change it, but I have so many people at work who are unwilling to change. And we've had these conversations over and over and nothing's happened. And it's like, wow, you have? Mm -hmm. Like all of this time, I thought that no one was talking about it, but they are. But yeah. the fact that you, and later on, they did a follow-up piece and I reached out to some of the people to say, hey, can I share your information? and say that you agree with what I'm saying, they were like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> it was a resounding no, <laughs> like, wow. uh, no. So just, just in that, and these are not small companies, these were big companies. And I'm not talking about a few, I'm talking about like 70 emails wow. from people across the country saying, hey, we get it, we know, we understand we're part of the problem we don't know what to do. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier. You've, you've talked to GCs and they don't know what to do. It's just, just change. Yeah. It's not that hard, you know, when it comes to work first, just change. All you have to do is just start. Like you said, one, two, three, easy. Yeah. All we have to do is start yeah. and send them this podcast. And we, I think we've covered some really phenomenal ideas on from top to bottom. I'll add one last thing. Yeah. Start within your company. If you are a medium-sized company or a large company, do an anonymous survey and ask your employees the tough question. And because you know it's anonymous, there'll be no ramifications for telling the truth of how they feel, but you will be very surprised to find out what they say. Ask them suggestions or ask what can they do, you know, what can be done to improve the situation. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you start there, because those people work there, they understand how things work, they can probably give you some great tips on how to start. Yeah. Just, you have to be willing to hear the truth. A lot of companies, they don't want to hear the truth about themselves. And I think that's a great, you know, advice to go to your own teams and where do we grow in this area? What area of the company could we start with? Let's keep, yeah. like you said, just change, keep it simple. Yeah. Find one position for us. It was a driver, one yeah. female driver. Let's start there. Like we can talk about it all day, but right now we still have all men working for us. We're not a diverse company. <laughs> Until we have one. After 2020, I don't want to hear any more talking. 2021, I've already said, I want to see some action. Let's so see it. What can I do? Start. That's what you can do. Start. <laughs> Let's see it. So before we kind of close with our rapid fire round, which is, is a fun way for us to get, you know, to complete this awesome interview, I do want a quick reference the book that you recommended reading because you are now, I always say when it, three people say it, it's going to happen. You're the third person that's recommended this book and this keep happen, happening to me with books. So clearly I'm supposed to be a reader this year. Talk about The One Thing by Gary Keller. Oh, I was like, oh, what book? Yeah, yes, I love <laughs> The One Thing. Yes, that's by far one of the best books I've read uh, in a long time. And it's good because it really makes you think about what your goals are. And so many times we have all of these ideas and challenges and things that we want to do and accomplish, but really they all fall under the umbrella of one thing and really taking that one thing and breaking it down into bite-sized manageable chunks and really filtering it out. And really that's with any company that you do. So um, taking that task, getting it nailed down and then moving on to the next thing. And so uh, doing that, it, it changed, it really, really changed the game for me and my business and getting clear, you know, 
so much noise and chaos with what you do mm -hmm. and people and persons and things and children and family. So it's like, sometimes you have to sit down and get clear on what it is that you want to accomplish. And I definitely think that book identifies that. That's great. Well, it's been delivered to my office. So now here we are with the third person saying, get the audio book. If, if you can't, if you can't read it, get the audio book, have it playing yep. in the background in the car. And so then you have no excuses. Yep. To just get clear on the one thing. And, and last thing is uh, the accounts that you like to follow that you mentioned on here um, at Black Women in Construction, ENR Magazine yes. today. Any other accounts that come to mind that you like to follow? There's one out there, I think Tools and Tierras, is that she's an African-American electrician. Yeah, yeah, I think I follow her too. Pretty phenomenal. Oh, they've got this one chick, Missy Sherber. She's not that oh. bad. Either, so. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm so grateful that um, through social media, we were able to connect and that yeah. we now have someone to look to and point to um, and to reach out to and say, how do we do this better? Or really to watch you because you're doing it better. You're doing it different. You're taking unique approaches. And I'm, I'm excited to really have a role model to look up to on how to build a better, more diverse industry. So thank you very much for this interview. But let's end it on a fun Thank one. you for having me. We've had some great serious conversation here. What was your first job ever? My official first job was a babysitter. Uh, my uncle who was a doctor. And so I got paid two, 300 bucks to watch his children for a night. And I thought that that was real life. And I found out it was not. You were living the dream. <laughs> All of his friends were doctors and it was great. It was a very cushy job for a 14 year old. <laughs> I bet, I bet. And what was your first car when you were um, living the babysitter's dream? Uh, yeah, it, it, it went down. It was a Mazda. <laughs> I love a it. Mazda, so yeah. So we're in construction. I do like to always ask this, and I think I forgot on the last two interviews to ask this, but gas station food, what's your gas station go-to? Because when you're in the field, you're going to the gas station. Oh, uh, I like almonds and Twizzlers. Oh, <laughs> that's a great healthy, not healthy combo right there. Yes. yes. <laughs> sugar and a healthy, little, why not? Yeah, a little, a little protein and a little sugar. Yeah, why not? If you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? My first love, I would be definitely, I'd be a psychiatrist. What song gets you pumped up? Anderson Pack, Windows Tinted. Okay. Okay. I have not heard that one. I love Anderson Pack. He's so cool. Okay. Who is one person you wish you could have dinner with? Ooh, um, I think I'd like to have dinner with Michelle Obama. Yes. Yeah, I think I'd like to. I'm going to call that into the universe. Michelle okay. Obama, dinner. I know you listen to this podcast, so. <laughs> I do. What is your dream piece of equipment? You know, if Caterpillar wants to send me a 340 straight boom, I am not opposed to having it. They can send it brand new. Uh, just call me. I'll send you the address. Yep. Just send her a DM. Did you hear that at Cat Construction and at Caterpillar? Yes. She's ready. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm ready. Yeah. If you want me to come and get it, you know, I will pay. I'll do that too. Yes. And you know what? You bring that up. And I, I thought she wants to learn how to operate an excavator. You know, I think we need to bring you out to Cat Headquarters in Peoria, Illinois. And yeah. those guys will have you running in hours. Like, I hope they don't have any snow right now. So that'd be great because I don't have any winter wear here. Okay. <laughs> and what do you predict will be the biggest disruptor for your business in the next five years? I will say it's going to be trade and tech schools because the new administration is really big on infrastructure. And so there's going to be a lot of infrastructure work. And at the same time, the construction industry is having a severe labor shortage. And so we have a lot of people who are qualified that are phasing out of this business. So we already need people in the industry. And yeah. so with the influx of construction work that's going to crop up in the next four to five years, we need people. Yeah. And so I think we're going to see more programs and more trade and tech schools coming up. And, and our industry needs it and it needs to be disrupted by that immediately. Yeah. So we can it's all the more reason to get on the diversity train because, hey, look around. It's a melting pot in America. We need people. 
Well, this was such a great time for me. I learned a lot from you. I had, you know, a couple light bulb moments for me um, that you mentioned. One, what gets measured gets done. It's time for us to start measuring our goals and the things we actually want to accomplish because we'll get it done. Two, to get diverse, start with decision makers. Start with the decision makers in your company. Um, Let's simplify the solutions here. Maybe go to suppliers, subcontractors. Another light bulb moment for me was don't give up on the guy hiding from the work. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I have a new role, you know. I have a new role. Here you had this hidden gem of talent of someone who's great and organized accounting tickets, which it, like you said, is hard to fulfill. It's hard to find someone who cares about that. So don't give up that on is, the guy. That is an underutilized skill set. Yes, absolutely. And then, you know, when you're dealing with bias barriers, call them out. Let's have conversations. Let's mm-hmm. look it out from under the rug. Let's call it out and let's be open. Tough but necessary. Yeah. Tough but necessary conversations that will bring change. So this was just a great hour of learning for me. I really appreciate you, your time. I know you're extremely busy. Congrats on all the recognition you're starting to receive really in the last year with ENR and your magazine cover. It's much deserved and I hope it continues for 2021. Oh, well, thank you so much. And, you know, I absolutely adore you in the most non-feminine way. So I think that what you guys are doing are great. Congrats on the new space. I can't wait to see more of it. Thank you so much for having me. You know, when COVID is, I can't say over, but when it's subsided or something, then I will, I'll be out. We will gather. (laughs) Thanks again, Jennifer. Thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another great episode of ConExpo ConAg Radio. And launching February 4th, you won't want to miss ConExpo ConAg's free Tech Talks, a series of live and on-demand technology education you can apply today. You'll get expert insights from leading technology providers, contractor-led training on practical technology applications, and demonstrations from certified instructors, all in 10 to 30-minute presentations for easy on-demand viewing. Visit conexpoconag.com slash techtalks for more information. And that's going to wrap up this edition of ConExpo ConAg Radio. If you like the show and think other people should listen too, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. We'll be back next time with another great guest. Until that time, be sure to visit conexpoconag.com forward slash connect for even more ways to connect with the industry.